This is Politico Energy. I'm Annie Snyder. The COP26 UN Climate Change Conference gets underway in Scotland this weekend. And among the thousands of world leaders, diplomats, business executives, and activists in attendance will be our very own Zach Coleman. The COP is a global event where almost 200 countries come to hash out what is basically the way to save the planet. Today, Zach breaks down what's at stake in this year's talks and the fault lines to watch for as the world gathers to confront the climate crisis. It's Friday, October 29th. The goal of these talks is to keep 1.5C alive. That is how the UK organizers have built these talks. That 1.5C refers to 1.5 degrees Celsius warming above pre-industrial levels. Now, that is the more ambitious target that was uh, sort of codified in the Paris Climate Agreement. Really, the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015 said that we should strive to keep temperatures well below 2 degrees C while pursuing efforts for 1.5 C. But there's been a lot of good science that's come out in between those years that basically said 2 degrees C is not going to be enough. We need to work harder. We need to cut more emissions than that. This COP in particular was always meant to be a sort of gut check on the Paris Agreement targets. When the Paris Agreement was signed, countries offered what was known as their NDCs, the Nationally Determined Contributions, which were essentially how they were going to get to their emissions cuts. And everybody recognized at that time that those initial targets were not enough to solve climate change. The idea was always to come back to the table and try to do more and convince other nations to do more. This five-year mark, well, it's really six years now because COVID delayed the talks by a year, was always meant as a political watershed moment in which countries were supposed to enhance and update their NDCs. And as we can see right now, a lot of countries haven't lived up to their original agreements, their original targets from the Paris Climate Agreement, and many haven't even updated those targets to do more like they said they were going to do. So we're going into these talks with countries not even living up to the goals and the plans that they laid out in the Paris Agreement, while at the same time, the science is telling us that the world's ambitions need to be even greater. So what are major countries bringing to the table as they head into Scotland? One of the biggest question marks is what the U.S. will bring to the table. President Biden said that he would cut emissions 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels by the end of this decade. And a number of other countries also are still working on updating their NDCs if they update them at all. The Biden administration has tried to press China also to improve its NDC uh, in terms of when it would peak its emissions. Uh, There's also questions about what will India do? I mean, there is a conversation between the Biden administration and Narendra Modi's government about providing financing for expanding renewable energy. Modi has set a 450 gigawatt target for renewable energy by the end of this decade. He's currently at about 100 gigawatts deployed. There's a talk about how to bridge that gap. Um, you know, we're also seeing, you know, whether uh, yeah, any number of other nations are going to flesh out more details on on what they are going to do in the coming years. 
So a lot of question marks heading into these talks, it sounds like. Um, but there are some dynamics that you've described that, that I think we can anticipate, right? It sounds like there is this sort of central dispute over whether the world's goal ought to be holding climate change to 2 degrees Celsius versus 1.5 degrees Celsius. Well, that 1.5 C versus 2 C is at the center of all of this because that really gets into the power struggle between the U.S. and China and then the EU and China then the UK and China. Uh, China is the one holding the line on two degrees C. So that, that in essence, will also encapsulate the US-China relations. Can John Kerry break through on climate amid really frosty relations overall between the two nations? I mean, these are the number one and two emitters in the world, and you really can't solve climate change unless both of them are going to do way better than they have in the past, especially China, which is just by far and away the number one emitter currently in the world. The other big fault line is, yes, that developed developing split. Uh, one of the biggest deliverables has been on climate finance. So the rich nations had in Copenhagen in 2009 promised to deliver $100 billion of finance annually to nations that are vulnerable to climate change, uh, that might not have the means to defend their, their populations against what climate change brings. And those nations have fallen short of that. The latest estimates are in 2019 that finance amounted to about $80 billion. And that's not just public money, that's also private money. Now, rich countries said that at best that they can deliver that $100 billion annually by 2023. So you're seeing it slip. And developing nations are basically saying, well, you've poison the goodwill that you were supposed to bring to these talks. You said that you were going to do this thing, and yet you're not doing it. And it's our livelihoods that really depend on you living up to your end of the bargain. Because here's the issue. A lot of these nations that are dealing with climate change are you know, the ones that did not put emissions into the air that are causing the current problem. It's historical emitters like the US, which is the largest historical emitter in the world. So that is uh, you know, one of the the big tension points that I'm going to be watching as well. So Zach, how are we going to be able to gauge if COP26 is a success or failure? Having a clear direction of travel to get as close to 1.5 C as possible, any fraction of a degree of warming that you can knock off from doubling down and doing your best is something that will make life much more livable for millions of people. And that, that is the goal here. It's how much better can we do and how much faster can we do it? Also, Thursday, House Democrats unveiled draft text for the $1.75 trillion social and climate spending bill that they hope will win the buy-in of all 50 Democrats in the Senate and be enough to hold support from progressives. The draft bill has $555 billion tagged for climate programs. That includes $320 billion to extend and expand renewable energy tax credits aimed at speeding the rollout of wind and solar power, and another $110 billion for encouraging advances in clean energy technology. Meanwhile, a $105 billion pot of money would go towards making the country's infrastructure and coastlines more resilient to natural disasters. Some major progressive priorities also made the cut, including a fee on methane emissions and a civilian conservation corps. But it's unclear whether the draft language had the buy-in of key moderate senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. And progressive Democrats in the House refused to commit to the measure until they've had a chance to review the text. 
House Democratic leaders bought themselves more time to reach consensus, opting Thursday night to approve a temporary extension of transportation funding that was set to expire. But the move represents a blow to President Biden, who had been hoping to arrive in Europe with proof of major progress on his domestic agenda. For more news on energy and the environment, subscribe to our newsletter at politico.com slash morningenergy. Some of the music in today's show was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Carlos Prieto and Nermo Malaykel are our producers. Raghu Manavalan is our senior editor of audio. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. Irene Noguchi is Politico Audio's executive producer. Our editors are Matt Daly and Gloria Gonzalez. I'm Annie Snyder, and we'll see you on Monday.